right. Good morning. It's a privilege to uh, get to be here with you all and uh, to share God's word with you um, this morning. Thank you, Matt and music team. You all sounded wonderful. I'm thankful for you guys. Well, over, uh, over this past Christmas season, uh, my wife and I made our usual trek uh, down south to see my in-laws. So uh, my wife's parents live uh, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, just in the northern suburbs of Atlanta there. And uh, during that 12-hour drive, uh, something happened that often, ha- often happens to us on that 12-hour drive. We get bored out of our minds and grasp for things to keep us occupied. And so this particular time, we um, were like, well, we like don't really want to listen to an audiobook. That's like too big of a commitment. We won't be able to get through it. So how about we see if we can find a shorter podcast series that we can binge, get through all of it, and just say it's done and then it'll crush the time. So we found one that sounded super interesting. And so here, here's the premise to this podcast. So essentially, the, there was a group of scientists that wanted to do um, an experiment about what life would be like for human beings to live on Mars, kind of with the goal towards human beings being on Mars by like, I don't know, it's like 2030, something like that, whatever Elon Musk wants to do, I guess. And, uh, but uh, the, the, this experiment was not so much testing the, the equipment or the spacesuits or the, the dwelling they were going to be staying in or anything like that. Rather, this experiment was designed to test the humans, It was designed to kind of be like a lab in which they could uh, assess human behavior in such close confines with other human beings for a year straight. And so what they, they did is they got six willing participants and they took them and they built a replica of what this space dwelling would be like on Mars. And they put it uh, in a remote part of Hawaii uh, where there's a lot of volcanic rock, the place on earth they said that most felt like and looked like and resembled Mars. And what was so interesting about this, uh, this study, and as I listened to the podcast, is to hear the way in which the individuals would recount their experience on day one, when they went into what they called the habitat, and then on day 365 when they came back out of the habitat. So, for instance, there was uh, one of the guys who was for sure the most optimistic of the bunch and the most extroverted. He says, they, they have an interview of him the day of, they're going, about to go into the habitat. And he's like, I'm excited for this opportunity to, you know, give, give back to science and whatnot. And then he says, I also really am thankful for my team. I feel like we're going to come out of here as six best friends. You can guess that that was not the case at all. Uh, what actually happened was each person came out of the habitat with one pretty close friend, two people that they tolerated, sort of, and two people that they absolutely could not stand, didn't want to see again for the rest of their lives. And this should be no surprise to us. I think it'd be the same way. Uh, maybe some of you parents feel this way when you're just locked in your house with your kids for an evening or something. Um, but... This, this teaches us uh, one important thing that's going to relate to the passage we're going to be studying this morning. And that's, as far as sinful human beings are concerned, proximity to other people means that problems are going to necessarily arise. And in this passage, we're presented with three different groups of people. 
We have the chief priests, the scribes, and the person of Judas. And their close interactions, their proximity to Jesus throughout his ministry, and particularly this last week of uh, Jesus' life that he is in Jerusalem here, they're going to result in their desire to kill Jesus ultimately. And this is going to come at no fault to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is not a sinful human being. But being in the presence of Jesus for these three groups of people has tragic, tragic consequences. And I think it should warn us of something as well. And so that's where we're going to pick up this morning. So if you would open your Bibles uh, with me to Luke chapter 22. Uh, We're going to be in verses 1 through 6, and uh, if you're using one of the brown Bibles on the backs of the pew there, uh, and you're looking for it, it's on page 1003. So here we go. This is Luke 22, 1 through 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers about how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for giving it to us in his goodness and his grace. I invite you to pray with me now. Father, as we come before you this morning, I pray that you would, um, by your spirit, that you would breathe new life into us this morning. Lord, would you, as we sang earlier, would you open our eyes so that we might behold the beauty of Jesus this morning. And as we open up your word, Lord, I pray that you would open it up to us and teach us more about our Savior and our friend, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Well, as we have been uh, studying the Gospel of Luke together for a very long time, uh, (laughs) we, uh, many times since we've preached the passage in Luke chapter 9, we've noted how Jesus has turned and has journeyed towards Jerusalem. We've made a point to note that in chapter 9, verse 52, there's this hinge verse in the entire book where Jesus is is ministering in other areas and then he turns towards Jerusalem and it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem where he would meet his death. But again, it, it seemed to take a long time for Luke to get us there. That was in chapter 9. We're in chapter 22 this morning. But I don't, know, uh, I don't know how many of you enjoy this, but one of my favorite things uh, in the world to do is to go, um, to go hiking uh, and, and backpacking. And, uh, and one of the most disheartening things when you're hiking and when you're backpacking is whenever you, you're, on a, you're on a hard, grueling trail, you're like, you, you're feel, you can feel it, that you're close. And all the signs are pointing to that. You come and there's a crest on the hill above you, and then you come over the hill and then you still have a mile left to walk. It's the worst. Uh, and then you have to reorient your whole framework for your mind. And you're like, okay, I can get there. I can push through this. But as Luke tells this story, what he's doing is he is, from chapter 9, verse 52 onward, he is 
building the tension in this narrative. And he's bringing events to what appear like are going to be a climax where things are going to finish and he's going to, uh, he's going to get in Jerusalem and they're going to kill him. And then he just keeps going. And he keeps building the tension. And he keeps building to that ultimate climax in his story. But where we are this morning is we're not at a false summit. We are steps away from the peak of this mountain that we've been building towards since chapter 9. But what we are starting to see as we get there is that dark clouds are starting to form at the top of the mountain. Things are starting to look ominous and dark. And that's where we are this morning. Well, in verse, uh, verse 1 of the passage, we read that uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is drawing near. And Luke equates this feast with the Passover celebration in Israel. Now, the, the day of Passover with the Passover meal... Uh, was the day that would begin then this week-long feast of unleavened bread. So it started what would then be a week-long feast. And Passover was one of the major Jewish festivals. Uh, It was also one of, I I believe, two of the Jewish pilgrim festivals, where what would happen is people would come from all over, all the Jews scattered across the nations of the known world, and they would journey to Jerusalem to bring a sacrifice to God and to celebrate Passover with their family and their friends. And Passover was a celebration that did two things in the life of the people of Israel. It both looked backwards and it looked forwards. It looked backwards in remembrance and forward with expectancy. You see, Passover looked back to that great day when God worked salvation for the people of Israel and delivered them from under the thumb of the Egyptians and from Pharaoh and set them free where he would eventually deliver them to the promised land. That great event of salvation in Israel's history. But not only that, it also looked forward with expectancy to a day when God would do a similar act of salvation and deliverance. When God, through his Messiah, through his Savior, would come again and would save his people and bring an even greater deliverance. So it looked back in remembrance on a past exodus and looked forward with expectancy on a future new exodus when God would set his people free. And the setting of Passover has enormous implications for the way that Luke tells us his story and the way that we understand it. So let's look again at verse 2 of this text, and we're going to see how the Passover setting uh, really comes to bear here. In verse 2 it says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So if you have been with us in this series for any amount of time, probably over the last several months actually, uh, as we've gone through chapters 19 to 22, where we are this morning, then you'll notice that this, is, this has been coming up a lot. The past, uh, uh, in, in these 19 to 22, in these chapters, Luke has brought this up three times, that the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. They are desperate to get Jesus off of their hands. And they were, the, the concept here is not just that they're trying to kill him, but they are actively engaged in looking for a way to do that. They're not just premeditating the murder right now. They are physically seeking a way in which they can bring it about. 
They're seeking for it in the same way that you and I might actively seek for our car keys in the morning whenever we're late for work. Right? The, the picture that we're supposed to get is that they're hurried, they're urgent, they're desperate, they're frantic. They're trying to figure out a way that they can dispose of him. And the text tells us that this is all because they are afraid of the people. So when we read that, we have to stop and ask ourselves, why are they afraid of the people? What, what is it about the people that would make these men afraid? They are the leading religious authority in Israel. Probably the leading uh, authority period over Israel at this time besides the Romans. Why, do they, why are they afraid? Well, again, the setting of Passover helps us to answer that question. The, the hopes of the Jewish people, remember, evoked by Passover, were for deliverance from an empire to whom they were subject, and then the subsequent establishment of God's kingdom by his Messiah and his Savior. So think about this during this particular Passover season. The Jewish people are under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And there is a man in their midst who is saying and doing many Messiah-like things. There is anticipation building among the people here in Jerusalem in this Passover season. And that's why Luke records for us just at the end of chapter 21 of what Jason taught for us last week. He says, And every day Jesus was teaching in the temple... And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. See, crowds are beginning to gather. Word is going around. Something is going on in Jerusalem this Passover season. And the people are beginning to whisper to one another, Is this the one? Could this be the one that we have longed for for so long? Could this man be our king? The one who will finally bring salvation? And it is precisely for this reason that the religious leaders have their guards up and they're actively seeking a time when they can remove Jesus without the crowds present. See, because they're in this strange situation. So they want Jesus dead desperately because he is a threat to their power. They want to keep their position of authority and Jesus coming as the king, as the Messiah, is a threat to that and they don't like that. So they are desperate to kill him. But at the same time, they're unable to because the crowd is so stirred up with messianic fervor that the, the religious leaders are afraid that if they spark a match, that the whole thing's going to blow up in their face. So they're doing this delicate dance. They want him dead, but they can't figure out a way to do it. And into this, one of Jesus' own disciples steps in to save the day for them. Let's read on in verses 3 through 6. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. This is the point in the narrative where you cue the sinister music, right? When Judas shows up on the page, we're all supposed to shudder, right? We, we're supposed to think of those archetypal 
uh, characters who betrayed some of their friends, right? We're supposed to think of, from history and Shakespeare, we're supposed to think of Brutus, right? Or for those of you who, like myself, are not as literarily or historically minded, you think of Lando Calrissian from The Empire Strikes Back when he turns over Han Solo in Carbonite to Boba Fett. Just saying, Lando's way better than Judas because he like has redemption and he comes back and because he's a pretty awesome guy. Um, but in that moment in the story, he is, he is a betrayer, and you're supposed to feel that way about him. But that's how Luke portrays Judas. He's supposed to be seen as this one-dimensional kind of character who just shows up to oppose Jesus. And we see that the only other time that Luke has mentioned Judas in his whole gospel up to this point is one verse in chapter 6, where just in a list of the disciples, he just mentions his name, and then he says, that Judas became a traitor and then just moves on. And so now he's picking that back up and he's saying, hey, remember when I said that way back in chapter six? That's happening right now. That one of the number of the 12, one of Jesus' closest disciples, the one that I hinted at at the beginning, it's happening. He's betraying Jesus. One of his closest followers is here selling him out. And while Luke doesn't tell us much about Judas, uh, in God's wisdom, he's given us the other Gospels. And they uh, fill out this portrait of Judas for us a little bit. And so I want to look at just two things, from one from John's Gospel and one from Matthew's, that will help us fill this in here. We know from John's Gospel, uh, in chapter 12, we know that Judas was the one of the apostles, who is, or the disciples, I'm sorry, who was in charge of the money. So in that, in that story, it recounts how, uh, how the disciples were talking about giving money to the poor and about how Judas, Judas like, faked to care about the poor. But then uh, John makes this comment of like, yeah, but he claims that, but he's also regularly has his hand in the money bag, taking money for himself. And then in Matthew's gospel, in his parallel account to the one that we're reading in Luke this morning of when Judas betrays Jesus, he records an extra detail for us that Luke doesn't, that really fills out the character of Judas. Um, so I'm going to actually put this one on the screen. Read, read along with me and see if you can catch what this detail is. It says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Did you catch that? That detail that Matthew adds. Doesn't it, doesn't it make Judas more sinister even than he already was? He, he, he doesn't come just to betray Jesus. He comes to make a buck. He comes bargaining before the religious leaders, trying to get more money out of selling out his friend. He is there to betray Jesus just because he loves Jesus money. And while Judas is responsible for his desires and actions against Jesus, and he has his own motivations for doing what he is doing, there is an even more menacing actor that's involved in this story. Satan, the accuser, the one who's the enemy of God and his purposes of love and blessing from the beginning of time, Satan sees an opportunity here. And as Satan is prowling around, 
looking to devour God's Messiah and his plan of salvation. He sees in the acts of the religious leaders and Judas here a chance to make it happen. He sees that this is his chance to crush the Messiah once and for all and to end God's plan of salvation. But let's, let's stop again and think about this. Who is it that Satan picks to work his plan that's contrary to God's plan? He picks the very leaders of God's people to work through. Like we, we have to catch this, right? The ones who were appointed to lead God's people, Israel. The ones who have also seen Jesus up close and personal. The ones who understand the Old Testament scriptures better than anyone and have seen them fulfilled right before their eyes. They totally miss it. And not only, only do they miss it, but they reject it and side with the enemy. And Luke wants us to see this so desperately. In, in verse 5, when it says they were glad when Judas uh, betrayed him to them, that word communicates an even stronger feeling. It, it's not just a feeling of gladness that kind of washed over them. The, 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 the word has more of the context, or connotation of them rejoicing or exclaiming that this is the case. So I hope, without being too provocative, I, I want to show you what, what's going on here. These leaders of God's people are holding, in a sense, a satanic worship service, praising him for his wise plan to oppose the God of Israel. They are in league with Satan. And this is why, in the opening to John's gospel, he writes that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And not only did they not receive him, they plotted with God's enemy to kill the one who would be their savior and their only hope. And for Judas and the religious leaders, it is precisely their proximity to Jesus that hardens them to God. It's the fact that they are close to him that hardens them. And in their hardening, they still cling tightly to their idols. Judas rejects Jesus, but clings to money. The religious leaders reject Jesus in order to cling to their power. Their nearness to Christ only caused them to become hardened to him and to cling to their idols. So this is, this is what we need to see in this passage. That proximity to the things of God does not mean that we are actually close to God. You can be as close to God as religiously possible on the outside and yet on the inside, you can be under the influence of the devil. In fact, we often, we so often let our proximity to the things of God push us away from Jesus rather than allowing it to draw us closer to Jesus. Some of us who appear the most religious on the outside, who hold the highest positions in church, who know Christian teaching backwards and forwards, who have good Christian friends, who have done everything right as a parent. You've sent your kids to Christian school, or maybe you're even better and you've homeschooled them. 
You posted pictures of yourself reading the Bible on Instagram. You do all of these things, and yet you can be the farthest from God if you are not careful. If we are not careful. All of this exposure to God can cause us to become overly familiarized with Jesus to the point where we do not love him anymore. In fact, we find ourselves puffed up in pride and we reject him and cling to our idols, ourselves becoming as hard as the very idols that we worship. So the question is, how do we protect ourselves from this? How do we not allow our proximity to Jesus? How do we allow that to not harden us, but to soften us to him? All of us here this morning are in some sense in proximity to Jesus. Whether you grew up in church, whether this is your first time in a church building in, the, in a long time, or whether you are a faithful member of this church who's here every Sunday, right now, this morning in this service, we are all in proximity to the things of God. We're hearing God's word taught. We sung about it in songs. And so this morning, even, how do we keep ourselves from being hardened to the things of God and allow ourselves to grow in our love for Jesus? And to answer this question, we're going to turn over to an account in the Gospel of John from the night before Jesus' death, right before the Last Supper, these events occur. So this is going to be, if you want to turn over there with me, uh, we're going to be there for the rest of the sermon. It's in John chapter 13, in the first part of uh, that chapter. And I'm going to read now from verses 1 to 5, uh, portions of the, those five verses. It'll be on the screen as well. He says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus rose from supper. He poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus here exhibits a famous act of selfless service that is hard for us to wrap our minds around and to grasp. In the ancient world, foot washing was a dirty job that was reserved for only the most menial of servants. And yet Jesus, God in the flesh, chooses to get down, to bend down low and serve his disciples. And not just his disciples that willingly accepted him. John makes it a point to tell us that Judas was there. That Jesus washed Judas's feet. And not only that, John also makes the point that Jesus washed Judas's feet while he was under the influence of Satan. Jesus's biggest enemy, the one who wants nothing but ill for him. Jesus washes Judas's feet even in that, even in knowing his plan to destroy him. And in thinking through this, I was trying to find an example of what that would be like. And I think this is the closest thing I could get, and I still think it, it, it falls short. But I think it would be like uh, 
Martin Luther King Jr. or John F. Kennedy or somebody that's gotten tragically assassinated before uh, they've lived the full, uh, full extent of their life. And it would be them having dinner with their assassin the night before they were going to be assassinated, knowing full well the entire plot and motivation of their assassin. And not just dinner, it would be a four-course meal that they themselves cooked for their assassin. And then they washed the dishes afterwards and cleaned up. That's what Jesus is doing here. Even though he knows how Judas is going to respond to his love, he still gives it anyway. And what what Jesus does for Judas here illustrates the reality of what he does for all of us. Right? Look at verse 1 again. Jesus, having loved his own throughout his life, he loves them to the very end. He is determined to finish his mission of love for his people. You see, in the midst of Satan's scheming, in the midst of his deception and his plan of death, God is working an even greater plan here. See, in the very death of Jesus, which is the plan of Satan, in that very event, God, God's plan of love and salvation is realized. What man and the devil intended for evil, God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. And while Satan frantically sought an opportunity to kill Jesus and snuff out God's plan, Jesus is not moved. He is resolute and determined to go to the cross. He is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He knows that God's plan for him is to demonstrate the immeasurable love of the triune God for humanity in dying for his betrayers, like Judas, like you, and like me. And as he hung on the cross, Satan thought that all of his scheming had worked. He thought that he had figured it out, that he had crushed God's Messiah and that he had won. But in that very event, God's love pierced through the darkness of betrayal and sin and death. And in that very event, God drew near to us in his love in Jesus Christ so that he might pour it out upon his people. So how does that relate to us? How does that help us to not be hardened to the words of Jesus? I think we see, if we read on in John 13, I think we see that in the way that Peter is portrayed as opposed to Judas. So if you would, look with me at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 13. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Do you see what's going, what's going on there? There's two movements of, of Peter's uh, response to Jesus. So first, he recognizes the greatness of Jesus. He recognizes that he is his Lord and his master. And he says, Jesus, there is no way that you are going to wash my feet. He says, I'd rather, it needs to be me washing your feet. There's no way that you can wash my feet. And then Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, 
You have no share with me. You have no fellowship with me. And so then what does Peter say in response to that? He says, Lord, grab a bucket and dump it on my head. Absolutely douse me. Wash all of me. While his understanding is immature and his responses are impulsive, they tell us something essential about being what being in close proximity to Jesus should do to us. See, both disciples lived close to Jesus for three years. They saw his life lived out. One ended tragically in guilt and shame and suicide over betrayal of Jesus. The other ends in a death of martyrdom, proclaiming the good news of God's love. What is the difference between these two? It's faith. Faith. That essential, the essential part of what it means to be a Christian. That throwing yourself on God in complete trust in what he has promised and what he has done. That is what makes these two men different. Peter saw Jesus bodily for three years. And while his life was marked with failure, this is what gives us all so much hope, right? His life was marked with failure. After he says this, that same night, he goes and denies Jesus three times. And yet, his life is also marked with a growing faith and trust in Jesus. You see, in that moment, when Jesus offers himself to Peter, he offers to wash him, to cleanse him, to pour out his love upon him. Peter says, I want it all. I need it. I want all of you, Jesus. That is what faith looks like. And so for those of us this morning with eyes of faith, when we see the way in which Jesus has drawn near to us, those of us who have turned our backs on God in betrayal and denial from the beginning, and when we see how he has died to rescue us from the consequences of that betrayal and denial, we ought to exclaim with Peter, give me Jesus. I can't not have Jesus. Faith doesn't value other things like money or power higher than Jesus. Rather, it says what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. See, unbelief and idolatry rejoices when Satan promises to fulfill all of our desires. But faith rejoices in Christ because we know that it is only in him and his love poured out for us that we find all that we need. Faith rejoices in knowing Christ, in loving Christ, and in enjoying Christ the one who has committed himself to you in love to the point of his own death forever. And we see him by faith now and we will see him one day by sight. And we will behold him and we will love him for all of eternity. That's the difference between these two men. And so before us this morning, as we see these two trajectories of lives, one characterized by a turning from God, resulting in hardening and destruction, and the other characterized by a turning to God as he is drawn near to us to die for us in Christ that results in blessing and life, may God 
humble us and not harden us this morning. May we see the gospel of God's love poured out for us. And may we place faith in him this morning. If you're here this morning and you have never placed faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you feel as if your whole life, in a sense, you've been like Judas. You've done nothing but betray him and turn your back upon him. He is near to you this morning. I pray that you would see what he has done for you in Christ and you would place faith in him, behold him, love him, and enjoy him. And for those of you here this morning, maybe you're those who are regular attenders of this church. You're those who are in regular proximity to Jesus. I pray that this morning you would see him anew in faith. See the way that he has lavished his love upon you and then cry out with Peter, Lord, give me more, dunk me. And so I pray this morning, whether it's for the first time or the 5,000th time, I pray that we would be a people who place our faith in Jesus and that that one step of faith would be just one more step towards the trajectory of enjoying Christ forever in our eternal home. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we recognize that it is dangerous to be near Jesus. And yet, whenever we are near Jesus and we recognize that it's only in him that we have hope, we recognize what he has done for us on the cross. Lord, being close to Jesus is the most joyous thing in the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that. Help us to see the way that you have come near to us in the gospel. That you've poured out your love upon people that have done nothing but scoff and betray and deny you. And you've given us the offer of life with you forever. Eternal joy and loving fellowship with you. So Lord, I pray that we would not only place faith in you, but Lord, we would experience that today. That we would be refreshed by your spirit, to enjoy Christ today by faith. And that we would grow in our love of him, that his drawing near to us would be a good thing and a joy to us, not something that leads to our ultimate peril, but something that leads to an eternal hope of glory with you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.